0: Waldie and Bendy. Bendy. Hello, this is Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art, the podcast they could not stop. I'm Valdemar Januszczak, art critic of the Sunday Times, though a few of my friends, the time poor ones, they just call me Waldy. And I'm joined on this podcast by the massively talented and erudite figure of Bendor, Bendy Grosvenor. Now, a listener recently complained. That I talk too fast on this podcast and since I don't want you to miss a single word I have to say on the subject of Bendy, let me spell it out for you very, very slowly. Bendy is marvelous. He's an art historian. He's a TV giant. Bendy how can you be all those things so slowly?
1: Uh, it takes me a lot of time to get good at things, if I ever get good at them. Um, it just does. I'm I'm quite a slow mover, actually. So I'm I'm with your listener there. Um, mm-hmm. We should all slow down.
0: Do you think I talk too fast or too quickly?
1: No, I don't. But, you know, I'm always struggling to keep up with you, Baldi. So <laughs> everything you do is too fast and too brilliant for me.
0: So you have this beautiful, mellow, deep voice. When you're done with the podcast, I'm sure you'll go into advertising and make an absolute bomb selling milk tray or something on the telly. Um, Whereas I'm more of the squawky chicken type, aren't I? And perhaps that's the chemistry between us. Maybe that's what it's all about.
1: Well, we could combine and offer a product, which is um, (laughs) chocolate-covered chicken. How about that?
0: There's a niche. The the chicken and the wolf. Yes, yes, that's very good. Chocolate-covered chicken. I'll definitely buy it. Um, Bendy I'm delighted to say that later in this podcast we're going to be hearing from Britain's greatest forger my good friend Sean Greenhouse I mean his name keeps popping up in our conversations so by popular demand we managed to get him on for a Sean Greenhouse exclusive and that's good news isn't it
1: tremendous yes I'd love to hear from him well done
0: So that's Sean Greenhouse coming up. Uh, And just to remind all our listeners, especially the three that we now have in America, there used to be just one in Ohio, but now there's another in New Jersey and one in Florida. So hello, America. Uh, And if you want to see all the pictures we're talking about while you're jogging across Ohio, all you have to do is go to zczfilms.com. Or as you would put it, ZCZfilms.com, and all the art that we talk about is beautifully illustrated and annotated right there. Now, this year is 2021, right? And that's a special year, because 2021 isn't just where we find ourselves right now. It's also the 480th anniversary of the birth of El Greco. And if that isn't a reason to celebrate, then nothing is. Dodgy, dodgy, dodgy anniversary! Yes, by popular demand, Dodgy Anniversary is back. As you know, the art world is always looking for dodgy pegs. The slimmest possible reason to put on a show. Any coincidence will do. And as 2021 is the 480th anniversary of the birth of El Greco, that's more than enough reason for us to delve into him deeply. Bendy, tell us about El Greco.
1: Well, born in 1541 in Crete, and his real name was Domenicos Theotokopoulos, which I hope I've pronounced vaguely correctly. But either way, um, everybody in Europe at the time seemed to find that too much of a mouthful, so they just called him the Greek or El Greco. And uh, Crete at the time was um, part of the Venetian Empire. So he ended up learning to paint in Venice and lo and behold, lucked out as a pupil of Titian. And that became the springboard for his immensely colourful and quite extraordinary style. Later on, he had a, a further period in Rome, and then was lured to Toledo in Spain in the 1570s to paint a number of pictures at cathedral there, and and stayed. And that's where he produced his most famous pictures. But he's an artist, I, as, you, as you may discover, I don't really know a great deal about, but he's just one of those blazing meteors of art history, isn't he? he Who is a blazes an amazing trail across our subject and then seems to disappear and we just stand around gaping in marvel at what he produced and and scratch our heads as to how he did it
0: Hmm. he was definitely very different and the reason he was different is because he combined in himself these two very very different traditions and if you come from crete the time that he did um, although it was part of the venetian empire it was very much culturally part of the byzantine empire in terms of the artistic styles that were followed so the kind of art that you made were you know, were, were pictures that we would now call icons. Very, very stylized, very formally arranged, in no way naturalistic pictures. Um, if you go into a, a Greek Orthodox church today still, you will see that kind of art. It was a rather mysterious beginning. And it's the transformation of El Greco, for someone who did that kind of stuff, into an artist who, first of all, was reasonably at home in Venice, and then, as you say, in Rome, and finally in Spain, that made him so interesting, because although he absorbed lots of great influences, I mean, he's very much a pupil almost of Tintoretto in terms of what he learned in Venice. He goes to Rome where quite transparently he's influenced mightily by Michelangelo. You know, when he gets to to Spain at the end of all that, he comes out as a completely different artist from anybody else either before or after him. And it is the strangeness of his imagery that, that really hits home, isn't it? I mean, these elongated figures, very curious colour schemes with bright, sudden, dazzling explosions of colour in them. These mannerist, twisty compositions. All that kind of stuff really did make him different from anybody else. So I'm not really surprised it took so long for art history to catch up with him. But uh, what a brilliant force in art he was. I mean, do, do you know Toledo, you Have you been much?
1: Um, Do you know, it's another place on my list where we have to go because (laughs) I've never been, but I'm looking at a reproduction now of one of his famous pictures from the cathedral there, which I I think actually was his first commission there, um, the disrobing of Christ. Have you seen this in the flesh?
0: Oh, yes, I've seen it. I'm afraid to say I've not only ever seen it, I have filmed it. uh, I've been to Toledo on the El Greco trail a few times. Yes, um, I'm an El Greco disciple. And that picture, the disrobing of Christ in the, um, it's in the chancel, isn't it, in the cathedral. What a fantastic picture, yeah.
1: We'll put a photograph of it up on zzzfilms.com and uh, just a quick description of it for the joggers. Christ is in the middle wearing this uh, huge, bright, vivid red cloak. And he's surrounded by this great swirl of, of action and hustle and bustle. At his left are the three Marys who are looking a little sad, and they're looking over at another person who is making the cross that Christ is about to be crucified on. And what's so extraordinary about the painting is not only the colour of it, but the composition. It's very flatly arranged, isn't it? Everything is sort of tumbling down upon each other. Uh, It's as if they're standing on a very, very steeply inclined stage set. When you look at, uh, certainly, reproduction, Um, and you're lucky enough to have stood in front of it in the flesh when you break it down into its component parts it's a painting that just shouldn't really work because no finger for example looks like a human finger the dress is all a little bit wonky Um, the sky is the most extraordinary colour the the figures are arranged um, almost without any care for composition at all and yet somehow it works. And every El Greco works, no matter no matter how far out there he was with his colors, his attenuated limbs, his, frankly, figures that look like they've been taking many, many tablets of, I don't know what, acid or speed. Everything just somehow works.
0: His art follows an internal logic, uh, an El Greco logic. I mean, it's unlike anybody else's logic, but I mean, it, it adds up to, to stuff that makes sense when you look at it. I mean, it's, it's a simple thing, really. He's not a realist. You know, he's a, an artist who takes these various stylizations and, and runs with them. Mm. Uh, and that's all you need to understand, really, about his work. With that chapel with the disrobing of Christ, that's mm. one of the great locations in Toledo. But, you know, the thing about Toledo, right? I mean, you know, there's a great landscape that he did of the city as well. I think hangs now in the Metropolitan Museum in New York and it's a view from a hill outside Toledo looking into Toledo So if you're on this hill and there's actually a really lovely Parador there, do you know the Paradors, these posh Spanish hotels you can stay in Um, I've stayed in the one in Toledo and it looks across exactly the view that El Greco painted in his famous picture of Toledo And it's a higgledy-piggledy town It kind of grows up on this rock from the river in in a cubistic fashion i mean it looks like it's been put together out of out of strange cubic shapes mm. and it's as if the atmosphere of the place got into his art because his art seems to grow like that as well in a rather topsy-turvy way upwards you know he was a massive influence later on cubism through picasso because of this sense of these shapes and cubes and planes clashing and mounting and creating their own reality in the picture. Uh, And Picasso was one of the first admirers of his work in the 20th century. And that's what people learned from him, that you don't need to construct a picture on some kind of other classical grounds. It can have its own logic. Mm. And they're just so damn exciting, you know, this art of his. I've got a a story. When you finish your story now, I'm going to tell you my story about me when I was a kid and El Greco.
1: Oh, well, uh, before we come on to the earth shattering art historical significance of Waldemar Yenishak's influence by El Greco, I was going to talk quickly about uh, Picasso's <laughs> influence by El Greco. Yeah. You, you mentioned it there, but we should mention the painting in the Metropolitan Museum, shouldn't we? Which is it's
0: The Opening of the Fifth Seal.
1: Yeah, or The Vision of St. John, I think it's also called. And on the left, we have St. John. Robed in this vivid, uh, bright blue robe, uh, reaching up to the sky. Um, It's very obviously a scene from the Book of Revelations because there's all sorts of extraordinary things going on. But in the centre of the painting, there are uh, three female figures who are lit very differently from everything else, and who seem quite static compared to the the more tortuous figures around them. And that is uh, believed to have been directly influential on Picasso's Demoiselle d'Avignon painting, isn't
0: it? That's right. Absolutely. I mean, Picasso had a friend. When Picasso first went to Paris in 1900, there was um, another Spanish painter living around the corner in Montmartre called Zuluaga. And this guy Zuluaga had several El Grecos, including the opening of the fifth seal, which is mm. the one you're talking about. So Picasso used to go around there a lot. Another friend of his wrote the first concise book on El Greco as well. So a, a little pocketbook that you could carry around. And the thing to remember is that El Greco had been written out of the canon for three or four hundred years. You know, since his death, he had been completely ignored. And it wasn't till the end of the 19th century that people started to get interested in him again. Yeah. And particularly at the beginning of the 20th century, through Picasso and the Spanish modernists, they really developed a taste for him. And there's no question at all that the El Greco um, of the opening of the Fifth Seal, the one you're talking about, which is in the Metropolitan in New York, was a picture that is at the heart of Demoiselle d'Avignon. That same sense of figures melting into the background. Of the cubes of the figures becoming the cubes of the space they're standing in the females with their arms up and all that even the shape of it which is interesting because it's a square painting right the El Greco and the Demoiselle Davignon is pretty much square but originally the El Greco was altarpiece shaped so it was much taller a much taller rectangle but they cut the top off at some point Uh, and it does give it a different feel and it's the feel that I think you get very much in, in the Picasso there's just this sense of a, of an agitated, cubistic space across which everything happens. Exciting.
1: Well, I can't think of another example in art history, uh, certainly Western art history, of where there is that uh, extraordinary gap between an artist dying and then suddenly them influencing a whole school later on. If we think, for example, of Titian, for whom El Greco uh, worked in Venice, you know, Titian comes along and sets the stamp for portraiture, and much of art in Western Europe for 500 years, doesn't he? And, and everybody follows his style. And then El Greco, popular in his day, dies. And then, as you say, absolutely nothing for almost three centuries. And then uh, contributes to this another revolution in in art history. And that. I can't think of another example like that.
0: Well, it was certainly powerful. See, I don't know. I'm trying to think of another one. I'm sure there are other people that were forgotten that way. I mean, Rembrandt was forgotten. Vermeer was forgotten. It's almost standard uh, in art history that unless you are Titian, um, you know, or Raphael, you get forgotten. We had to move into an era when art wasn't about realism. That, that's mm. the thing, isn't it? It's, it's, that's the big switch. When art stopped being about trying to paint the visible world as clearly as possible, In other words, you know, the camera came along and started doing that job perfectly well for it. When art became other things, expressionist, uh, when it became abstracted, you know, that's when you uh, had the space opening up to enjoy uh, Greco and to admire him and indeed to recognise his brilliance. So because, of course, he wasn't just an influence on the Cubists. I mean, the German expressionists as well, painters like Franz Marc and August Macker, all these artists for whom the picture was a flat surface on which undulations and cubes and interfacings and interlockings could happen. You know, they had this example from, from El Greco. Um, Can I tell you my story? Go on. It's vaguely relevant, right? (laughs) Um, I went on a holiday with this wonderful lady who's now my wife, right? Early in our relationship, we went on holiday to the Greek islands and I was working at the Guardian at the time. I was the art critic of the Guardian. And we got to Athens and I just remembered reading somewhere or other on one of those you know those foreign newspapers you get where um the garden used to have this thing called the guardian weekly where it would it would have all the week's news in one little edition onto yeah
1: you buy it in the airport for three quid or
0: something yeah well, so i got one of those and i read somewhere that this new el greco had been found the earliest known el greco from his cretian period from the very beginning on a greek island and that it had been found in the church there and i thought great um Oh, let's go and see it troubles I couldn't remember the name of the island all I remembered was that it began with s and ended with s right <laughs> so I said to my wife I said no let's go and find this old greco in this church on the island we should be able to find it really easy it begins with s ends with s and then we went to six different islands you know do you know how many islands there are beginning with s and ending with s as in, in as the as Greek islands well. so there's <laughs> Samos, Skiros, Spetsis, Skiathos, Sifnos, Sycanos we did six of these places eventually ended up on Syros which is the one the right one yeah. we got to Syros asked around El Greco never heard of him got to the church and then there it was the Dormition of the Virgin wow. from El Greco's early Cretan period you know when he was painting still as a Byzantine icon painter and it was really thrilling I mean, it's a tiny little picture but it it did give you this really strong sense that the transformation that he embarked upon and that he worked must have been so massive to go from that to what you see in Toledo or what you see at the Metropolitan Museum in New York. Huge step.
1: Oh fantastic and, and after that your future wife thought well if I can manage following around uh, various Greek islands I can manage a whole lifetime. I don't have an El Greco story like that I'm afraid. Um, I met my wife on the trail of a portrait by Alan Ramsey but it didn't involve Greek islands it involved lots of um, rainy Scottish locks.
0: Oh, they're good too. You can't be just a rainy Scottish lock, I think. <laughs> but El Greco, absolutely wonderful painter. To the best of my knowledge, there's been no Hollywood biopic made about him. So um, that's good news as well. We don't have to be tortured by any of that. He's a marvellous painter. We're a bit short of great old Greco's in Britain now, aren't we? I mean, there are a couple of things at the National Gallery, but they're, they're not really the ones that get your heart pumping. To get your heart pumping, you've got to go to Toledo, Bendy.
1: I suppose so. And he was also uh, quite reliant on his workshop. And you get a lot of second and third rate El Greco's, don't you? So,
0: you do. Um, you do. But yeah. And of course, in Toledo as well, the other thing about him is that he was very multi talented. He was a bit of a Bendor Grosvenor. There wasn't much he couldn't do. You know, he did sculpture, he did architecture, um, as well as the painting. And there's a couple of um, order pieces in in Toledo where he designed the church, I mean, he designed the Reredos as well as painting the pictures in a really broad mind. Mm. And
1: there's a whole load of missing um, writings. He was an author, a philosopher, an author, but um, unfortunately they have not survived.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of work still to be done on him. Well, we haven't done him justice because you can't, but we've tried hard, Bendy, and that's the, the most a, a person can do is to try hard. There we go, Bendy. At least would we'll agree that El Greco is one of the true greats, um, very exciting artists. But... It's time to move on, isn't it? Time indeed for this podcast to dive into some very murky waters. A shadowy kingdom. A mysterious world where money talks and greed stands naked. And no, I'm not thinking about the Antiques Roadshow, Bendy. I'm thinking about the world of forgery. The Interview That's right, we've got a special guest on the podcast, the world-famous forger, Sean Greenhouse. He's been called Britain's greatest ever forger, uh, by me as it happens. Uh, And in terms of both quantity and range, he's certainly up there. These days, having spent four years in prison, paying for his crimes and definitely earning his redemption, he makes things under his own name. And indeed, he's got some stuff coming up soon in an auction in his hometown of Bolton which is where he still lives and where I spoke to him about his chequered past. Sean, the thing people like about you and I like about you very much is that you have such a sort of unexpected background. I mean, you grew up in Bolton, you went to a local comprehensive, you learn most of the stuff by yourself. It's not what people would normally imagine to be a Forger's background,
2: is it? No, not really. I think most forgers usually have like a background in fine art training or restoring or something of that nature. But I've had nothing like that. I just, I've just had a passion for art since I was a little boy. So how did you get into it? Oh, well, I think my first memory of the magic of drawing was my dad, he'd sit me on his knee when I was very small, maybe three or four, and it's only a faint memory, but he'd like sit me on his knee and put a pencil in my hand and he would hold my hand. My dad had a wonderful drawing hand, by the way, really, really good. I was actually holding the pencil, but he was doing the drawing. i like, and an I'm a bird or an animal or something would appear, and it looked so real. And it was just like magic. I thought, wow, where's this come from? And I started practicing by myself, loads and loads of drawings. And it just started from there. And then modeling with plasticine, and then with clay, Then my fascination with ceramics. My mum and dad bought me a little kiln when I was a boy, about 11 years old. It's a small one, a one-cubit-foot one. cubic foot one And i am off with making ceramics and all that stuff. It's just just like something inside of me. I can't really explain it, but it's just like a a burning desire, really. Mm. What was the first thing you
0: actually sold, though? I can see why you might have started making things, but when did you start selling them? Uh,
2: Well, when I got my pottery kiln. I used to do bottle digging. It was like a popular thing back in the 70s. Victorian tips for bottles and pot lids and stuff and anyway I found this pot lid sold it and I thought I could make them and it's much easier than digging it's, it's quite dangerous on the cinder tip. so I made some of these pots I had a, quite a few disasters initially but I persevered made a few took one in and he didn't bat an eyelid and just gave me five pounds for it which was a load of money to me back then I thought wow I can, I can actually make things and sell them I didn't tell him I'd made it and he didn't ask so I just sold them and then did a few other designs not every week just occasionally and then took them in and i had no trouble in selling them and that's kind of where it went on so i think the pot lids were really my first proper good sales so so who did you sell them to was it somebody just selling stuff in an antique shop or what sometimes a little antique shops there were quite a lot of them around bolton then there's not so many now they're mostly charity shops now but uh, there was a flea market at the last drop Every Sunday afternoon, there were people though who dealers who bought what would phone would take the news all we would stick stuff in regularly. And I kind of just slipped these pot lids in under the radar with the rest of the stuff. You must have been rolling in money then for a young lad of 11 or 12. I was, I was quite affluent, I had a flashy 10 speed racing bike and <laughs> fancy clothes and all, all sorts of things. Yeah, I, I wasn't short of money when I was, when I was a, a teenager anyway so your first things were these pot lids what, what did you then go on to do because you've done pretty much everything haven't you yeah another good a good line i, I got into painting bird pictures well not really good but in the style of archibald thorburn and I, I always yeah. i signed those in my own name i sold them to a dealer in manchester and he was in king street he's, he's long gone now but i used to sign them in my own name but later on i found out that he was he asked me to sign them right out in the margin. And I was pretty naive and I didn't know why he would trim them off and sign in A Thorburn. I, I saw one at the game for at the Cheshire game for one years ago, and I could tell it was definitely mine. It was a water club after Thorburn, and it had signed in the corner A Thorburn. I think it was nineteen fourteen. I think because I always put a little something in that I can tell it's mine. And it was definitely one of mine. And the provenance—it had a spectacular provenance gone through these London dealers from the artist in 1914, sold to this, well, I'll not say which dealer on Bond Street, but it was a, a Bond Street dealer, and all of its provenance up, up to date, up to, like, the 1980s. Hmm. That was none of my doing. I didn't do any of that. But these these are the kind of things that, like, with the provenances I saw on it, these are the kind of things that, like, led the way for me, I should say. Yeah. There was a
0: Thorburn on the Antiques Road show the other day, and I, and I, I remember looking at it thinking, oh, I wonder if that's one of Sean's. I mean,
2: there's a lot of them out there. You, you produced a load, didn't you? I, I, I did loads. But like I said, I never, ever signed one of them, A Thorburn. I just signed my own name. But they were as close to Thorburn as I could get. So I, I don't know how far they'd fool people today. So the art world
0: that you're talking about here, the, the, the people that are buying stuff from you, passing it off as other things,
2: um, mm. were they exceptional, these crooked dealers? Or were they all like that or what? Uh, well, all the ones I met. To are honest, I'm not knocking art dealers. A lot of them are very knowledgeable. and they're, they're difficult people to get past, but sometimes more difficult than the auctioneers because they put in their own money on the line, obviously. But the ones I had the misfortune to deal with, they were completely corrupt and crooked. They were. I'm not saying they're all like that. They're not but the ones I came across were. Hmm. So people buying stuff like that, buying antiques and
0: things, is there a particular area they should be careful about that forgers are particularly active in or that you are particularly active in?
2: Yeah, well, I I think works on paper, drawings and the like, I think uh, that is a minefield. Oil paint is like the stock in trade that most people think, like an an old wizened art forger with a big white beard and a shock of white hair painting at his easel, like an old master that is actually the hardest and most complex branch of art forgery completely is. It's very difficult and it's a long lead time. When you've painted it, you've got to age treat it for four or five years. You can't just bung them in. With the state that people who look at them today, the knowledge today and the scientific instruments they have to look at them, it's very, very difficult to paint. So I've kind of swerved away I've done a bit of it, but I've kind of swerved away from that more as I got older because like with ceramics you can make a pot one day and sell it the next day just a little bit of coloration on the foot ring, and it's done the, a, a 500 year old pot looks as if it was made yesterday. So ceramics are the easiest to forge and sell like quickly. So ceramics are a minefield, works on paper, it's the same thing. Mm. So these days you're pretty safe with oil paintings, not completely obviously, but I think it's like the safest branch. ceramics
0: i know about from personal experience because um, when i first encountered you sean um it was with a ceramic it was a clay model of a a gogan sculpture that had turned up at the van gogh museum in amsterdam and i'm on the telly telling everybody how wonderful it is and only later
2: did i find out that you you made it you bugger (laughs) i know i think that was 93 or 94 i made that i can't exactly remember that kind of came out as an accident. I just, I'd seen Gorgon's ceramics and seen his clay. Obviously, he kind of put it together himself. It wasn't a, a bog standard you can buy from the suppliers. So I kind of looked at it and thought, I, I, what would he put into it? So I put the stuff into it, fired it at a few, made some tiles and fired it at different temperatures and for different durations. Sometimes it bloated and cindered, and other times it was too. Pe- and this time it came out. I opened the kiln as soon as I saw it, I thought, that's spot on. So I cast a room for something. I'd seen this little sketch of a form, something missing, which was my usual line into something. If it was something locational known, it would usually say in there. But that car kind always of, kind of fired me up. And I had a go at it. But I didn't make it perfectly right. I made it actually in three parts and glued it together. And they didn't even they never spotted it. From a distance, it looked right like you saw it in the case. But if you could have examined it and turned it over, I'm sure you yourself would have spotted it.
0: So Howard, so you're telling me that this, this sculpture which fooled, well it fooled the Van Gogh Museum, it fooled the people putting on the Van Gogh show, and it must have fooled the owners at the time, which was the Chicago Art Institute, the
2: world famous Chicago Art Institute, yeah. you're telling me that actually I didn't know it had ended up there, I think they sold it to them for 100,000, I think I got about 18,000 at Sotheby's for it And you'd glued it all together and they hadn't noticed yeah, I went to the sale, actually. I went in, and it hadn't calmed down. The guy came up to the rostrum with a broom slop on it, holding this thing, and the, the auctioneer were like, blah, 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 started at 10, bang, 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 sold. And it had gone at 80. I I like looked around in short. Mm. They, they just sold it, and most people were still talking in groups. They hadn't even sat down to begin the auction, and it just went like that, 18. I thought, I was expecting a big number for it, Gorgon, especially, and it had passed everything. The Wildenstein Institute had authenticated it, so I thought this could be a big earner and 18,000 quid for item in the sale. Gone in five seconds. So I don't know what that was about. Mm. See, talking to you, t-
0: two things stand out for me. One is how dubious the art world is and how much goes on in there that, that basically mm. we have no idea about. We want art world to be angelic and pure and innocent, but it certainly isn't. But the second thing is how much of what is interesting in art is, is about the making of it, you know, that it isn't. Mm the name on it it's actually how the damn thing was done that's and that's seems to be what really interests you as well Sean
2: it does yeah I've never really been in it for the money fully the money's been fine it's enabled me to travel and do things but I've not really been in it for the money not at all you're in it really so you can fool people like me and no no uh, I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm, no it's, it's mainly i've not wanted to fool anyone it, it's mainly to like to find out how these things were made and try my own hand at it and i'm as good as they are because after all even the greatest masters only have two eyes and two hands with which they make these things and a bit of brain thought well i've got a reasonable brain a pair of hands function an eye so if they can do it I've always questioned, why can't I and why can't other people? What makes them what they are so special? And that's yeah. really been the main thing that's fired me. Yeah. So I see that you've got some work coming up at auction in Bolton. Well, what are those pieces? I've got two large Degas pastels, uh, two Lowes and, and a Matisse. <laughs> <With> a little <laughs> black cat on her lap. So <laughs> like three oils and two pastels, I think.
0: Yeah, the Lowrys I can imagine.
2: I mean, you're you're well known for your Lowrys, aren't you? I like painting them, and people seem to like them, and they they usually sell for modest prices, kind of. But I'm satisfied with that. Is he an easy artist to do? He looks like he would be. Yeah, yeah. He's more complex than people see at first glance, but he's relatively easy to paint for most people. Yeah.
0: Tell me about the ones you've put into this auction, then. What 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 are they? What are the Lowrys? These Sean Greenhouse Lowrys.
2: There's a large Lowry of uh, well. Lowry-esque, shall we say, of like Salford Docks. It's a bit like a composite, like he always did. It's not a, a realistic view, as you know, he never did realistic views. Well, hardly ever. There's one of them, there's a small mill scene, uh, a Matisse of a girl on a chair with a, a red dress on, a black cat on her lap, and uh, two Degas pastels of ballerinas. It came out okay, so.
0: Yeah, they look good, yeah. You've done Degas before, haven't you? Wasn't it a Degas the first real forgery that you ever sold?
2: Yeah, a a Degas, a little charcoal drawing of a a ballerina tying her laces. And it was a weird thing that I drew it without reference to anything, just a little sketch on old paper. Sent it in for identification. It came back saying that it was a a missing drawing that was already catalogued. I couldn't believe my ears. (laughs) but There it was. I didn't copy it off anything. I just did a a freehand drawing in his style, of course. Put a little Degas squiggle on it. And they said it was a lost drawing. I've how flabbergasted actually and it brought a really good price so how do you learn to do something like that i mean how did you learn to do a Degas drawing so well that some experts were fooled by it well when i draw well, i just race off a few copies most of them are rubbish actually most of them wouldn't fool anybody but just occasionally like with that uh, Gorgon ceramic with the, the clay bodies sometimes they just happen i, I can't really explain it. it's a bit weird i'll like do like say Five or six, very quick, like, you've got to have the spontaneity in them, as you know with art, it's got to show the spontaneity. And then I'll, like, sift through them, and sometimes, not all the time, sometimes they all get screwed up and go in the bin, sometimes there's the odd one that looks, ah, that's, I think I've caught it there. So I'll kind of submit something like that. So you don't set out to copy a specific
0: thing you learn how to make it in the style of that artist is that the difference
2: yeah just looking at them in books first of all then having to go and see them in in the flesh so to speak you can't learn how to do them by just seeing reproductions you've got to go and see the real thing and study it and just follow the line and think how we so like with signatures or or anything like that just look at it and think how he's done it how he would move his hand around where he would start, top or bottom, left or right, because you can always see where the drawing starts and where it finishes, the lines. So I kind of just study that and just practice it and practice it and practice it. Practice makes perfect, as I say. Not always perfect though, (laughs) not usually perfect. Well,
0: it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Sean. The lesson for me is always be, be really careful when, you, when you're out there in the art world to, to see what you pick up. Oh, yeah, it is a minefield. Yeah, but now you see you're, you're selling your, your stuff as Sean Greenhouse, and so these Sean Greenhouse Lowries that are coming up at the Bolton auction, I mean, who wouldn't want one? I might bid for one myself. What a fantastic mm. thing to have, a Sean Greenhouse Lowry. Oh, thanks, a. Take care, Sean. Lovely to talk to you. Okay, bye-bye then. Bye-bye. Oh, what a lovely man. Um, ben, isn't he lovely, Sean? I am mean, gonna love hearing from him. That Bolton accent somehow gives everything he does a kind of piquancy, doesn't it?
1: I know what you mean about the Bolton accent. It's really lovely to listen to. And I feel very sympathetic to Sean. I feel like I've got to know him vicariously through you over these last uh, few months. And of course, I, I've got his biography. And the more I hear about him, the more I learn of him, do you know, I feel more and more sympathy for him. Um, mm. I was reminding myself about the circumstances of his trial and his prison sentence. He got four years, yeah, which is isn't it? Which quite a lot, because I was looking at the the penalties, or if we can call them that of, of other uh, well-known British forgers. And it seems that Sean really got the rum end of the deal. So um, there's, there's John Myatt, who was a well-known and very successful forger for a while. And is now on uh, Sky Arts as a TV presenter. I think he only served four months. Um, Tom Keating, Another famous one, he kind of got off entirely. And Eric hebben perhaps the most sort of financially successful of the lot, well, he was never even arrested, despite confessing in a book. Yeah. So I, I wonder that if if Sean, you know, had studied at the um, Royal Academy School, yeah, or the courthold, yeah. and sounded a bit more like me, I wondered if he would have, have been well, dealt with so harshly.
0: Well, he wouldn't have been. That's the simple truth of it. I mean, he, there's no question about that. You know, the fact that Keating was a friend of Anthony Blunt's you know, and and knew that world. I mean, there is a class factor involved in it. I mean, the charm of Sean is that he doesn't seem to be the kind of person who could possibly have learnt the skills and the, the techniques that he did learn coming from where he came from, you know, Bolton Comprehensive, Dark Satanic Males. But that's also what made him the perfect scapegoat, really. I mean, he was stitched up. There's no question about it in my mind. He's incredibly loyal and hardcore about not naming people, not naming the bad guys in his life. He's never told me exactly who it was who ripped him off and all these art dealers who who set him up to it, but they were there, you know, they were there. And and a lot of people got off scot-free, got off with nothing. And Mm. and he was made to pay for it because he was the oik from the North. And it tells you a lot about British society. I think what happened to Sean.
1: I suppose we should now celebrate the fact that he's gone straight to use that terrible term. And he's he's putting his skills to a slightly more conventional use. Uh, there's no doubt about it. He is exceptionally talented at what he does. My only wonder is if he was allowed, given a huge canvas and said, painter Sean Greenhalgh, so I wonder what he would come up with.
0: Well, I, unfortunately, I do know the answer to that. And it's it is something not very good, I'm afraid. He did have a go as, as, as Sean Greenhouse painting Sean Greenhouse. And, and I, I think he will now be the first to admit his skills are in manufacturing, you know, his right. skills are in his hands. He can adopt any technique, he can master any method, he can pretty much do anything but his imagination is of a different order. I mean, how can I put it nicely? He did make some rather terrible, when I first got to know him, we, we used to talk quite a lot about conceptual art and he did, he did produce a series of works about how much money was going around the art world. as a kind of revenge for him. There were like collages using pound notes and pictures of bankers and things. And unfortunately they were dreadful. Uh, nobody liked them, not even me. Uh, but as soon as he starts doing a Lowry, you see, I mean, yeah. his fake Lowrys, which they're not fakes anymore, they're Lowry-style paintings by Sean Greenhouse, but they're wonderful. They are the best thing you can get if you can't afford a Lowry. And, and uh, you know, just some people are like that. He, he lacked a certain imaginative direction, but he had yeah. so much talent and has so much talent in his fingers.
1: And that's a theme common amongst the, the great fakers throughout art history, isn't it, really, with the exception of Michelangelo? But you know what I'd really like to see before we wrap up on Sean, and, and perhaps we should start a crowdfunder for this uh, fellow listeners of the World and Bendy podcast. I would like to see Sean Greenhalgh's portrait of you. And it can be in sculpture form. It can, be, it can look like one of his uh, slightly overinflated Armada princesses. But I would like to see it one day because I think it'll be a, a thing
0: of beauty. <laughs> <laughs> He'll do a pot probably, a big round <laughs> pot, with glasses on it. Listen, Bendy, we better move on. But I know there's uh, something, listen, you, you got in touch with me this week moaning about the National Gallery. There's something happening at the National Gallery and I promised you we'd deal with it on this podcast because this is the vehicle for all the best moans. Tell us what you're complaining about.
1: Oh, well, uh, no, I hesitate to subject anyone to my complaints, really. No, I just thought it would be interesting to discuss because it was a week of, of contrasting fortunes in the museum world in Britain. Uh, the National Gallery announcing a, a £30 million sort of facelift for its uh, its entrance areas. Uh, that is the front door and the, you know, the, the way people get in. And then there's been these terrible other stories of regional museums. Uh, there was an example in Birkenhead, wasn't there? where the local art gallery that's been going for you know over a century is threatened with closure because the council needs to say, we're talking paltry sums. I think it's just £200,000 a year needed to keep it open. Um, and it just, it just felt to me like, and this is a theme we've discussed on the podcast a few times before, that this terrible disparity in our country between London and parts of the Southeast that get seem to get all the money have no problems getting money for their great infrastructure projects when it comes to art and museums and the regions which hardly get even the scraps. And and we, mm. you and I need to agitate to change this.
0: Mm. I know what you mean. To be honest, I thought you were gonna go about it a different way. I totally agree with what you just said, 100% agree with you. But what gets me really is I'm just so fed up of museums closing in order to rebuild themselves. You know, the National Portrait Gallery is closed at the moment for, what, three years, is it? Mm. Um, You know, Tate Modern, that whole slab of it was closed for all that time while they rebuilt their new wing. Everywhere's always closed these days. They're always rebuilding, and these huge vanity projects seem to be driven by really spurious things. I mean, the National Gallery rebuild is, is driven by, I think, is it the 200th anniversary of the That's gallery starting? Right. Yeah. You know, dodgy anniversaries everywhere. Every time <laughs> there's a dodgy anniversary, the Royal Academy went on this massive rebuild and shut down. You know, I always say, just stop it. They'd just stop rebuilding. Court Old Gallery, stop it. Just stay as you are. Let's go in there. We'll let the lockdown finish. For heaven's sake, just give us some joy for a while without this constant vanity building building all the time that's my position
1: on it yes I wonder if there's a link it seems to be a male director thing doesn't it it's kind of look at my museum entrance or look at my atrium Uh, there's a ring of that about it Um, and what what amazes me is the same with the National Portrait Gallery where most of the work is being done on the entrance is that all these museums who deal with what's called in the retail trade threshold resistance that is you know the the fear that so many people have that they don't want to visit a place because they can't get over the threshold And museums are quite rightly always wanting to bring in new audiences. But the phrase threshold resistance doesn't mean you just need to fix your threshold. It's not about a new front door. The reasons that people don't go to museums are far more complex than that. And if museum directors think, well, I can fix this by building a new front door, they're they're thinking about it in entirely the wrong way.
0: Hmm. Who goes to the museum to look at the front door? (laughs) You You go to see what's inside it, for heaven's sake, you know. I don't care if there's a tent out there and I have to go in through some flapping tarpaulins. All I'm interested in is what's inside, you know, and and, and the sooner I can get to see it, the better. If someone now gets in the way of my art enjoyment because they've got some crazy scheme to build and rebuild and enlarge and spend millions on it, um, they're going to find themselves in the presence of a very angry Waldy indeed. Uh, You want to avoid that. Yeah. Well, thankfully, having got that off our chests, Bendy, we can relax a bit because coming up next is the equivalent of a beautiful bubble bath on this podcast, isn't it? It's the moment where we can recline and lie there in warm water and just dream about beautiful things. Because you know what it is, don't you? You know what's coming up. On the wall. Ah, on the wall. Oh, I feel better already. Bendy. This is always the fun bit of the show. Uh, this is where you get to surprise me by pushing things in front of me that I've never seen before, um, that I always find very revealing. Um, it's interesting to see when, you, particularly when you go out on the edge a little bit in your taste. So what have you got for us this time?
1: Well, wally I've got a picture that I've never seen before, actually, and this came to my attention via Twitter, and it's a painting by Edward Butler Bayliss who was born in 1874. And he's known uh, locally as the poet painter of the black country. And for our three American listeners, the black country is a, an area of the English West Midlands, which legend has it became black um, as a result of all of the, the fumes and soot of the industrial revolution. And if you were to stand on a hill in the black country in, in say, you know, around about 1890, when uh, Edward Butler Bayliss was painting his paintings there, you would see at night, for example, great shoots of flames as all the blast furnaces from from the steel production carried on uh, blasting away into the night. And Edward Butler Baylis, who was largely self-taught, made a career painting scenes like this. And one that I've chosen is from an online exhibition which has been put on by Wolverhampton Art Gallery, and it's a really lovely online show. I recommend people go and click on it because all the pictures are there in high definition, and you can zoom in and and see what Edward butler Bayliss was all about. The one I've chosen depicts a scene of people coming out of, I think, a steelworks, and they're doing what's called uh, tipping the slag, and that is taking away all the the red-hot... You know, waste product from the steel furnace and they uh, tip it down the side of a bank and you can see this the picture is divided in half you've got a slag heap um, in the foreground and above it this very traumatic smoke-filled sky with the blast furnace on the left and in the middle you can just see a tiny group of people who have obviously tipped this train load of slag and this this red hot lava-like substances um, pouring down the side of this slope and that was that was like all these activities in the industrial revolution it was a very dangerous activity and yet butler baylis has managed to create a a certain scene of of drama and beauty his paintings were a world away from this sort of slightly uh, romanticized depiction of the industrial revolution um in the hands of artists like other local artists like um joseph wright of derby this is the real deal these scenes um and i thought that in our current lockdown state when um People like you and I, uh, me in particular, are always prone to complaining about life. Well, we should just remember that back in the 19th century, if you were working the Industrial Revolution in places like the black country, well, life was a very great deal tougher, even than the toughest days we've had during the lockdown.
0: Mm. It is grim. I'll give it that. It's very, very grim. It's all smoke. It's all chimneys. And this fiery stuff pouring out into the road from the slag heaps the word for it is hellish, isn't it? I mean, it looks like hell, um, down to the molten lava of the slags or whatever it is. And yet there is this weird, dark, horrible beauty to it, isn't there? I mean, that's I suppose that's why they called him the poet of the black country, um, because it doesn't go all the way out really to, condemn this site it finds a certain mysterious I think romance in it I mean fog is always mysterious isn't it you can't whether it's created by chimneys or or by nature there's there's something about it that always gives mystery to a picture so I guess he exploits that and I don't know his work at all Um, I do know bits and pieces of the work of other artists who tried to make the industrial revolution look romantic. There's a great painting by De Lauderberg. You know De Lauderberg, the big yeah. panorama man who did these scenes of, of uh, filled with a kind of biblical energy. I mean, he yeah. did views of the Black Country. There's Famous one, isn't there, somewhere in Shropshire. He did um, the big factory chimney, which very similar to this. You know, big chimney, smoke belching out, fire burning. And it all feels very, very hellish. Isn't it interesting that you should have encountered this on an internet site put out by Wolverhampton Art Gallery? And that's one of the few good things that's been happening, isn't it, during the lockdown. All the art galleries have, I think, upped their game when it comes to the internet. And there's plenty of interesting things to be found out there if you uh, put your nose down and search.
1: Mm. Yeah. And do you
0: know, I've never been to Wolverhampton Art Gallery. And when this is over, I shall go. Oh, you'll have fun, I'm sure. Do you know what? I don't think I've been either. (laughs) That is me spending most of this podcast. I'm always able to trump you because I've done so much stuff going to places. (laughs) But I don't think I've been to Wolverhampton Art Gallery. I can say one line in Wolverhampton. um, You've done it now. That's a friend of mine taught me how how to say, you've done it now in a black country accent. Mm. Embarrassingly, that is that's yes. the end of that conversation. <laughs> uh, let's move on from that. It's a very interesting picture. Yes, um, Edwin butler Baylis is an artist I didn't know as well and I will look out for in the future. My picture, right, have you got it in front of me, Bendy? Yes, I can see it now. Here's my question. When was it done? Um,
1: 1972.
0: 1972. Why do you say that? Because it looks like the sort
1: of thing you'd find... Um, in a seaside art gallery in 1972.
0: Right. Do you know when it was done? No. About 1862. Oh, right. So a hundred years at least before what you said. It's a watercolour by an artist called Georgiana Houghton, who I think can make a very, very solid claim to be the first ever properly abstract artist. And I came across her in a show at the Courtauld Galleries a few years ago. Um, she so suddenly unveiled her. And frankly, it was just staggering. I mean, to think that at the same time as the Impressionists hadn't even happened yet, basically, you know, Van Gogh was still living in the Borinage, this woman was painting these really far-out abstract pictures. And what you see here is kind of swirls and bits of blobs of colour and the all rather cosmic, I suppose it could pass for something like um, energy currents or or a view of the galaxy without anything legible in it amazing drawings and they've been completely ignored completely uh missing from any art historical reference until very recently and um what they are is spiritualist drawings so this woman georgiana houghton would go to seances and her sister one of her sisters came from a large family her sister had died quite recently Um, In an effort to try and speak to her sister, who had been very artistic and did a lot of drawing, she tried to go to seances and communicate with her sister. And one way or another, she didn't end up meeting her sister, but she did meet another woman, an artist called Lenny, who began communicating through Georgiana Houghton and literally doing these drawings using Georgiana Houghton's hand. So during the seances, Georgiana Houghton would draw, oblivious to what she was doing, and all the work, according to her, was being done by the undead presence of the artist beyond. Isn't it an extraordinary thing? I mean, have you ever seen anything like that?
1: No, I have not. I've I've never heard of this story before, it's fantastic. Have they got cobwebs on them or something?
0: I think what they did was, uh, there's in early seances, they used a thing called a planchette, right? So a planchette is basically a piece of wood with little casters on it and a space in the middle for pens and for brushes. So you wheeled this around, imagine a sort of roller skate device that you rolled around on the table with tiny casters with a pen in the middle. And then you did these swirling motions with it and it moved very freely to create these lines and swirls and a bit like a spirograph, is it? That that kid's toy you can get, which does something similar. So a little bit like that. But she did loads of them. She did hundreds of these watercolors, which she then colored and showed to her friends. And they were, I mean, absolutely extraordinary. And here's a big surprise, right? So I'd seen the show at the Courtauld and I thought to myself, wow, that's really interesting. And that's basically 50 years before Kandinsky, who is normally thought of as the first abstract artist. Mm. 50 years before Kandinsky, 50 years before Malevich, before all of them. Here is a woman artist in England producing totally abstract work. So all you see are these lines and patterns and things. Absolutely extraordinary. And I thought, how wonderful. And I looked her up. Uh, and do you know where she lived?
1: Uh, 23
0: Hampstead Drive. Very close. She lived at one Highgate Rise, right? Near you. More than near me, in the same place as I live. So I live on a building that was put on top of her house when they knocked her house down. And I live in a big mansion block, right? So are you Lenny? I I, I am living where Georgiana Houghton painted these pictures. I only found that out by by coincidence later on. So I was immensely spooked. Opposites, the opposite where I live, there's a church, St. Anne's Church, Roman Catholic Church, which is where Georgiana Houghton, who was very religious, used to go and worship. So she would just pop across the road to the church and come back and have these seances all within a Roman Catholic tradition and do these extraordinary pictures which have been now scattered about. You know, It doesn't get more spooky than that. That's amazing. I mean, This wonderful, interesting presence. Um, Come to think of it, I think she's driving my hand right now, Bendy. Something's twitching at my arm. Clicking the the leave button. (laughs) It's clicking the leave button, indeed. (laughs) Then she's forcing some words out of my mouth. Uh Oh, I I can't stop her saying it. Oh, (laughs) Bendy, first of all, she wants me to say that we owe this podcast to (laughs) Thea Osterholt, our producer, who never gets (laughs) mentioned and who should get mentioned. Um, And she also wants me to say thank you, Bendor Grosvenor, for being on this podcast. Um, And uh, she's forcing me to say uh, uh, bye bye from me.
1: Oh, and before I say cheerio, uh, Lenny and Georgina and Ter and Waldemar, since there's obviously something in this, I've got a picture which I'm really struggling with as to whether Van Dyke painted it or not. I wonder if we could set up a seance and we'll
0: ask him. That's a very good idea. Um, I'm getting my head moving up and down. I'm not, I'm, I can't stop it. It's just moving up and down automatically. It's dipping. It's going to happen. So yes, bye-bye again from me with the dipping head. And cheerio from me. Waltie,
1: Waltie and Bendy. bendy.